Bible, if you have your Bible with you, I invite you to turn to Romans chapter 6. We are going to continue our series that we started a while back in the book of Romans, and I just want to uh, give a little bit of an introduction before we read that passage together and then get into it. So, um, Romans chapter 6, 1 through 14 is what we're going to look at today, and uh, working all right we got it all right so here's what we're going to look at we're going to look at Romans 6 1 through 14 introduction uh, would be something like this we have heard a lot of good news haven't we so far in the book of Romans we heard a lot of bad news for a while and then lately really ever since chapter 3 verse 21 we have been hearing good news after good news after good news Uh, good news about what Christ has done so that we who were unrighteous could be declared righteous, that we who were under God's wrath can be saved from God's wrath, that we who were living as enemies of God can now live at peace with God, right? So all of these things have been shared and delighted in over and over again as we've gone through the book of Romans up through now, and then we get to chapter 6, and Paul, who's writing this letter to a group of Christians in Rome that he hasn't met yet, he's assuming that after all of that talk about God's grace, he's reminded us over and over again that God doesn't save us based on all of the good that we have done or any of the good that we have done, right? So we're saved totally and fully by God's grace alone. That's how God saved us, right? By His grace. And so so that doesn't mean at all that we are never going to sin again, but it does mean that we are totally forgiven at all for all time, past, present, and future. God's grace is sufficient and abundant, right? So we've heard that good news. And now Paul is assuming that these Christians that he's talking to, when he tells them this radical message of grace, because all around them people were religious who thought that they had to do something to keep the favor of their gods. And Paul's saying, no, listen, it's all his grace. And if you sin against him, he does not forsake you. You still receive his grace. And so he's assuming, Paul is, that they might be asking a question. And that that question might be, then what is the point of not sinning? What's the point of not sinning? If if God's grace will cover all of my sin, and sin is fun... And I still, as a Christian, have urges to sin. Why not just go at it? Why not just have fun sinning because God is going to forgive me anyway? He already has forgiven me. Paul's assuming that they might ask a question like that. And I'm assuming that maybe we've asked questions like that before. Right? If God's grace is so abundant and it covers all of my sin, past, present, and future, what's the point of even seeking to live a life where I have an urge to sin, and instead of doing it, I turn away from it. Why would I do that? And so we're going to look at that here in Romans chapter 6 today. The big idea, uh, inside your bulletin, I always uh, uh, put a sermon outline together, and now that our life groups are starting to meet, uh, there is a life group guide. Again, if you're interested in being in a life group and you're not in one, contact the church office. They're just starting this week, so you're not even behind at all. Uh, We'd get you into one. 
and, and what we do in our life groups is we take some time to go back through the passage that we look at now this morning. And God desires that we not just hear and understand His Word, but that it does something to us in our hearts and in our minds and in the way that we live. And our life groups are a way to help, uh, help that happen as we encourage and, and, and uh, push, exhort each other. So, um, life group guide is, con- in, in, is uh, included in that as well. So, if you're there and if you're in your Bible in Romans chapter 6, we're going to look at verses 1 to 14. Our, our custom is that as we read the Word of God, we stand together. And so if you're able to do that, would you please stand? I'm going to pray first and then read the Word of God. Let's pray together. Father, we do, we pray together that you would now, by your Spirit, come and be, be at work in us. Would you, would you soften the hard places of our heart uh, where we have questions, maybe even the same questions that are being asked right here in your word? I pray that you would have our mind be ready to receive the answers, um, that, that, we wouldn't, um, that we wouldn't be um, resistant to what it is that your spirit wants to do in us today uh, and throughout this week. So I pray that that would happen for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So Romans chapter 6, we're going to read verses 1 through 14. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life He lives, He lives to God. So, you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. You can be seated. The Word of God is good, and it's good for us to spend a little bit of time together, uh, just trying to make sure that we understand it, and then, like I said, spending some time also allowing it to do something in our hearts and minds. See in the bulletin that there's uh, three points today. The first one is this. 
we live in a new reality. Remember that Paul's writing to Christians, okay? He's writing to people who have become convinced that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the one and only Savior, and so they have turned from sin and trusted in Jesus. And he's writing now to them. And he's telling them, he's reminding them that they live now in a new reality, that they are, in fact, united with Christ in death and resurrection. It's a big idea all throughout, especially Paul's letters, that as Christians, we are united with Christ. We are in Christ is another way that he says it. That's another way to say a Christian, right? That we are in Christ. We're united with Christ, specifically in his death and resurrection. Now remember from my intro, the question that he was wondering after talking so much about grace and all that God does for them despite their sin, that they have maybe this logical question in their minds, well, why not just keep on sinning? Because sinning is fun sometimes, and I want to do it. Like, I became a Christian, and I didn't stop wanting to sin. I still want to sin, so why not just do that? So the question he rephrased, the way he phrases it in verse 1 is, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And he gives a pretty clear answer right away, and he'll spend the rest of the passage explaining it. His answer pretty clearly is, verse 2, the beginning of it, by no means. Now, if Paul, if Paul like, was, was communicating this in, a, in, a, in modern day, if he was like sending this as a text message, it would be all capital letters with lots of exclamation points after it. Right? Just kind of a, no, 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 don't you get it, guys? By no means. If he put an emoji with it, it would probably look something like that. Kind of like a, ah, oh, you guys, no, I don't think you're getting the point of, of God's abundant grace towards you in Christ. And now, now you're wondering, oh, does that mean I can just keep on sinning? It's like, no, by no means. Okay? All right. Next verse. Sometimes I get excited. Um, but, but I think, I mean, have you ever been, like, so, so you've heard somebody, like, teach the Word of God, uh, and, it, and, and you can't imagine anybody who actually wrote that. Like, if Paul wrote that, if you just read Paul's writing, you can tell he's a pretty passionate guy. And he doesn't just say, no, and let me explain why. By no means, he says. Like, like I think he's pretty passionate about this, so I want to be too. Um, but here's what he says. Why not? The rest of the passage is really going to lay this out. Well, why not? If you are in Christ and your, your eternal life is secure in Christ because of what He's done and through His grace and your faith in Jesus, then why not keep sinning? And Paul's short answer is, well, because we're united with Christ. We're united with Christ now. Because of who we now are, that's why we don't keep on being who we used to be. Does that make sense? Because of who He has made us, because I am now, I didn't used to be united with Christ. I used to be separated from Christ because of my sin. Now I am united with Christ. And because I'm united with Him, I don't live the same way that I used to live. By no means, he says, how can we who died to sin still live in it? How can we who died to sin still live in it? What does it mean that you've died to sin? He's going to spell that out a little more as we go through the passage. It basically means that sin, it's not like sin doesn't exist anymore, right? Sin is still there. We still are tempted to it, and we still fall into it, but sin no longer has dominion over us. It's not our master anymore. 
We're not governed by sin anymore, right? We've died to sin. And more on that here in a bit. And then he uses an illustration. He talks about, here's one way. Those who came to faith in Christ in the first century, those who came to faith in Christ, when they came to faith in Christ, they would follow Jesus' example, and they would go in some water, and somebody would baptize them. They would be put under the water and be raised up from the water. Right? That was the practice of baptism in the first century. And that was a way in which people were publicly identifying with Christ. And we do baptisms here in this church, and if you're interested in learning more and maybe have never been baptized and would like to talk about it, come and talk to me about it. We do baptisms in this church, and, and, and uh, we're not typically in fear of what might happen. But in that day, in many places, if you were publicly identifying yourself with Christ, you were putting yourself at risk. But they recognized it as something worth doing, not because it was going to save them. right? People didn't get baptized because they thought, if I don't get baptized, I'm not saved. Paul has made it clear throughout all of Romans so far, we're saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus. That's what saves us. Right? Baptism doesn't save us, but baptism is an illustration of somebody who has been saved. What has happened is that they have been put to death, their old self put to death, and they've been raised to new life in Christ. And so baptism is a good picture of that. And so that's why when I do a baptism uh, here in the church, um, as I put somebody under the water, I say, buried in the likeness of his death and raised in the likeness of his resurrection, right? We're identifying ourselves with Christ. Raised to new life is what it says in verse 4. Now, I brought my twins hat. I've, I've used this illustration before, and so if you are here a couple years ago when I used it, maybe you remember it, maybe not. Okay? Um, I have been a twins fan for quite some time. Uh, when I was a little kid, uh, I grew up in Minnesota, and so would follow the Minnesota twins, uh, mostly through listening uh, uh, to games on the radio, occasionally going to a game with my family. Uh, so I've been a twin fan. I've identified myself with the twins for a long time. When we like a sports team, we identify with them, right? So even like if you're a Hawkeyes fan, you're like, hey, we won 42-3 to last night. Like you're actually a Hawkeye. You're not. None of you won last night. Uh, you maybe watched a game and some other people won, but you didn't win, right? Uh, but, but we identify ourselves with that, with that team. We're saying, that's my team. And so, so I, the Minnesota Twins are my team. Okay? They've been my team for a long time. One of the ways in which I have chosen to publicly identify myself as somebody who's, who's, who's with the Twins, even this year, and I haven't worn it much this year, um, is, that, is that I put this hat on. Putting this hat on does not make me a Minnesota Twin. I did not just become a Minnesota Twin. I did not just become a Minnesota Twins fan. Christopher likes the Kansas City Royals. If I went and put this hat on Christopher, I could not turn Christopher's heart into loving the Minnesota Twins all of a sudden. Correct? So, like, baptism isn't something that gets done to somebody uh, so that their, their heart is changed. It's something that is done as a symbol of the reality that the heart has been changed. Right? And so there's this, there's this symbolism of United, you being united with Christ that comes in baptism, that we are buried, put to death as Christ was put to death. Our old self has been put to death, and we are raised to new life in Christ. Verse 4 says, to walk in the newness of life. See that at the end of verse 4 there? 
buried therefore with him by baptism, raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so that we too might walk in newness of life. Verse 5 sums it up this way. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So Paul's answer to why not keep on sinning, he's saying, well, it's because we're united with Christ. Just like he died, we, our old self, was put to death and we've been raised to new life in Christ. So we're like a new creation is the way it says it in 2 Corinthians 5. We're a new person. So why would we keep doing the stuff that the old us used to do? That old us is not just like we've sort of like slightly changed and become a little more religious and we're a little nicer to other people. The the reality is when you put your faith in Christ, you have moved from death to life. Right? So, So you are a new person. And if you are a new person, you live in a new way. You live in line with your new reality. So that's the first point. And then he's going to lay out just a little bit more, uh, verses 6 and 7. What does it mean to die with Christ? Okay, so let's look at verses 6 and 7. Verses 6 and 7 say this. We know that our old self, let me get to it, there we go. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would be no longer enslaved to sin for one who has died has been set free from sin. Okay, what we've been singing about so far this morning is the reality that Jesus died on the cross. Right? That's what, that's what I want to proclaim every time that we gather together. That's what we sing about when we gather together. Jesus died on the cross. Why did Jesus die on the cross? Well, according to Romans so far, here's what we've gotten. It's, it's a long list. Here's what we've gotten so far. From the book of Romans, Jesus died on the cross so that... He could be a propitiation or wrath absorber for our sins. Jesus died on the cross to reconcile us to God. Jesus died on the cross to give us peace with God. Jesus died on the cross to save us from the wrath of God. Jesus died on the cross to give us justification and eternal life. Jesus died on the cross as a demonstration of God's love for us. All of those things we've heard just so far in the book of Romans. That's why Jesus died. Now we find out that for those of us who trust Christ, or are in Christ, or united with Christ, our old self was crucified with Him. That we who are in Christ, it's as though our old self has been put to death, crucified with Him. That's what it says in verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with Him. It says in verse at the end of verse 6, that we are no longer enslaved to sin. Last week we were at the end of chapter 5, and when we saw that all of us as humans, because we're descended from Adam, we inherit this sinful nature, and we like to sin. We're all enslaved to it. That's what we want to do. Sin, whether we recognize it or not, controls us until that moment when we are set free from sin. And how do we get set free from sin? Do we get like in an accountability group and work really hard at not sinning anymore together? No. We're set free from sin when we trust in Christ. We're united to Christ by faith. And our old self is put to death. And when our old self dies, our new self is a self that is not any longer enslaved to sin. We've been, one who has died has been set free from sin. You understand verses 6 and 7? Looking like people are tracking. A couple people you don't look like you're tracking, but uh, most of you look like you're tracking. 
and we'll keep going. All right, little application of this, though. Little application of verses 6 and 7. I think it's good for us to remember that, that as Christians, temptations to sin will continue to come. There, there's not going to be a time where you're like, okay, I've graduated. I don't even feel like sinning anymore. Temptations to sin are going to continue to come at you. They come in all sorts of ways. The difference when we're Christians is we have a different relationship to sin. It used to be our master. And so when those temptations were to come, there was not much that was holding us back from giving in to temptation. But now, if you have trusted in Christ, you are this new person, and sin's no longer your master. It's still there, but now Jesus is your master. Jesus is your Lord. And so you have different desires. As you grow in Christ, your desires change. And you need to recognize, I've been... That old me has been put to death. And so that's why when I, uh, when I baptize people, before we, we do a baptism, we meet together and I remind them, one thing that I think can be really helpful about being baptized for you going forward is that it helps you to remember that as temptations to sin come, that, that you remember your body physically being totally immersed in the water, put under the water, and then raised back up to, to be a reminder no, sin used to be my master, but that, that old me died. It didn't happen at the moment of your baptism, but the baptism was a good thing to help us remember what has happened. That old me died. I don't have to sin anymore. Like, I don't have to obey that urge. Right? Just because, I, because it's there and because I want to, I don't have to. That's what it means to die with Christ. Now, last point is the last few verses, and that is this, living in Christ. What does it look like to live in Christ? First of all, we see that Jesus lives. We, we've seen that all throughout Scripture. But here, Paul's going to point out the fact that Jesus lives because death doesn't have dominion over him. Did Jesus die? Yes. Does Jesus live? Yes. Why? Because death doesn't have dominion or power over him. And so he lays that out in verses 8 through 10. He says first in verse 8, now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we'll also live with him. Verses 9 and 10, we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. Death doesn't have power over Jesus. That's why there's an empty tomb. Right? Because it's, it's a display, a symbol of the fact that death doesn't have power over Jesus. He was put to death. He was buried in a tomb. The tomb was sealed, but three days later he raised from the dead. And he's not going to die again. Death doesn't have dominion over Jesus. And that's really good news for us who trust in Christ because we are united with him. That our hope of eternal life is based on the fact that Jesus is alive. Right? Talk more about that at Easter. Well, let's go on to verses 11 to 14. What does it look like to live in Christ? What does it look like to live in Christ? We've already learned that the reality of who we are in Christ is we are people who are set free from sin. Sin is no longer our master. Jesus is. Now, how are we supposed to live? What does it look like to live in Christ? He's already told us, well, it doesn't look like you just keep on sinning like you used to before. Like, like your relationship to sin is the same. Like, 
oh, it doesn't bother me. I'm just going to do it because I do what makes me feel good. I do what I do because I just don't want to think about it. That's not the way we do it anymore because that's not who we are. Look at verse 11. Verse 11 says this, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. What does that mean? You must now consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. He's already told us, hasn't he? This is who you are. If you're in Christ, you are dead to sin and you're alive to God. But now he's giving this command, consider yourself dead to sin. Another way to say it would be, live in the reality of who you actually are. You have been transformed. You really are dead to sin and alive to God if you trust in Jesus. You really are. And so start thinking about that. Remember, Paul's writing this to Christians. And so so I speak to you, fellow Christians, those of you who trust in Christ, we need to remember this. It's good for us to consider the fact that we really are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. I was reading this week uh, something about um, how, and I could totally see how this would be the case, how, how shortly after the Civil War had ended and slavery was abolished in the United States, many of those former slaves who were legally no longer enslaved, right? The reality was they were not slaves anymore. Nobody owned them and nobody could sell them anymore, right? They were set free. The reality of who they were had changed. Sin was no longer, like their their master was no longer their master, right? But do you think that immediately after, like like the day after they hear about that, that, that when a former slave would run into their master in town, they wouldn't have just a bit of fear? Well, of course they would, right? There would be this, you, you don't just immediately snap out of this, this, I used to be enslaved and now I'm not enslaved. There's still this, like, imagine. I mean, after, after potentially years of being owned by somebody, what, maybe, maybe being beaten by somebody, threatened to being sold by somebody, right? That, that legally they were set free, but as they would run into their masters in other places, there would be much fear and trembling and they would have to remember, hold on, not my master anymore. I live in a new reality now. He can't, he can't do to me what he used to do to me. They had to consider that, had to, had to remind themselves often of that new reality. This is who I am now. That's what we have to do as Christians as well. And how do we do that? Verse 12. skipped over some stuff. Verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. How do you remind yourself that you're a new person now in Christ? Well, there's going to be temptation to sin, and here's our new relationship to sin. We don't let sin anymore reign in our mortal body to make us obey its passions. We make a conscious decision that sin that I used to tolerate and be okay with, I now look at that sin 
And I say, no, I will no longer let sin reign. Sin, sin doesn't have dominion anymore, but, but sometimes we can functionally still let it reign. But he's saying, no, consider yourself dead to sin and let it not reign anymore. Before, you didn't have that choice. It reigned. Sin had dominion over you, whether you liked it or not, whether you admitted it, whether you even knew it or not. But now in Christ, you've been set free, and so don't, don't like, get back into slavery. A lot more on that in the coming week, especially next week. We're going to spend a lot more time because we spend the rest of the chapter talking about that. So I'm going to skip ahead for now. But verse 13 says this, Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. I was struck with that verse this week as I was preparing this message. Because because I get what Paul is saying. It's, it's not that hard to understand after a little bit of study. I get what he's saying. He's saying, this is who you are now, so who you are now changes how you live. I get that. Like, we can understand that in our minds. But, but in reality, how do we actually not let sin reign anymore? What are some practical steps that we can take to make sure that sin doesn't reign anymore? Well, one, one of his commands is don't present your members to sin as, as instruments for unrighteousness. Just find ways to avoid the things that used to tempt you and pull you into sin. But if, if possible, can you avoid that? Right? Well, sure. Yeah, I guess I can do that. Like, like if, if, if I had a struggle in this part, if I had a struggle in, in what I looked at on the computer... Then, then I need to, maybe now, because of my new life in Christ, maybe I can, I can have uh, so, some filtering software and some accountability in that way. Maybe, maybe if, if, this is what, if this is what tempted me, or is there a way that I can make sure that I don't present myself and put myself in a situation where that's easy to do again? Well, yeah, of course we can. And then, and then he says this. He says, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. And I thought about this. You know one thing that, it doesn't apply to most of the rest of you, but I'll just say it. One thing that's helped me to to not let sin reign in my body is being a pastor. I don't like, not like by becoming a pastor, I all of a sudden became holy. Let me explain how that works. As I occupy myself by offering myself to God as an instrument of righteousness, like as I say to God, take, take my life and do what you want with it. I want you to do whatever you want to do with my life. And so my life is occupied hours in the week with giving myself to serving other people in the name of Jesus. And as I do that, I don't have as much time or thought to put into how I might give my body as an instrument for unrighteousness. Now, now I recognize, like, so, so I'm like, okay, so I'm not going to sin anymore. But like, no, that's not the issue at all. Continue to, to but, but I recognize in my life, as I look at my personal growth, 
my personal growth has come alongside this time where I'm giving myself to being an instrument of righteousness. God, use me in whatever way you want. I'm just an instrument. Use me. You don't have to be a pastor to do that, right? I'm so grateful. This is, that's why I love this time of year in our church. I have been uh, in awe, again, of how many people it takes to serve in this church body. How many people are using their gift? How many people are offering themselves to God as an instrument of righteousness? Saying, listen, I'm not somebody who has it all together. But I am somebody who used to be dead, and now I'm alive. And so, God, can you use that? Can you use somebody who used to be under the reign of sin and under the wrath of God, who you, by your grace, have now made a new person in Christ? Can you use me for something? Whatever it is, can you, can you do it, God? And I think God's answer will be, oh, yes, I can. And I've seen so many people do that. At this time of year, we see it especially. And it's really a beautiful thing as God uses people for instruments of His righteousness. We engage in ministry together. Um, it, so, so I'm just thinking of, here's ways I saw it this week. Okay, so this week our clay Bible study started. Um, that, that's, that's a group of ladies that get together on Tuesday morning, some from our church, some from other churches, some from no church. They get together on Tuesday morning. They just started this last week. Um, and, and they're studying the Bible together. God is doing good things there. In order for that to happen, Kirsten and Christy have put in hours to prepare for that. And, and, and uh, this week, Terry and Terry and Linda were in the nursery. And, I, like, and, and they did, like, amazing woman stuff that, that I don't know how they did. Like, so they're like, holding and consoling crying babies and playing puzzles at the same time with other kids and, and changing diapers. Like, and there's just people seeking ways. Like, God, use me in, as an instrument for righteousness. Use me in whatever way you want. Then we come to uh, Wednesday night. And Awana, uh, last year we would have typically, by the end of the year, it was more like 50-some kids in Awana. This year we started out the year with 90. It typically grows a bit during the year. So we have 90 kids uh, at Awana this week, uh, and the same amount of leaders as last year. Um, but, but, uh, but the leaders um, seeking to, it wasn't chaos. I mean, a little bit of it's chaos because this is what happens when there's that many kids. But, like, leaders who are available, making themselves available to serve in whatever way they can. Do, do, do they all have, like, incredible biblical knowledge that they can, are they all gifted teachers? Like, no. But it's all people who are willing to say to God, just use me as an instrument. And maybe one instrument blown on a tuba by itself doesn't sound very beautiful, but you put a tuba in a whole orchestra, and it's a beautiful thing, is it not? Right? Like, like all of these different instruments working together. We're going to see that happen as we gather together in life groups, and there's so many other ways. On a Sunday morning, it happens every week on Sunday morning. In order for all this stuff to work, there's, there's people that have done work to get it all prepared. There's people sitting in the tech booth every week. There's people over in the nursery um, serving us. There, there's people that are on the worship team that are organizing and planning and practicing and playing and singing. All these people, all different gifts, all different backgrounds, who are using the gifts that God has given them, saying, God, would you use me as an instrument for righteousness? So I was thinking about this this week. We're not going to do this because we don't have time. I talk too much today. But um, I'll, I'll put it on our Facebook page, and you can watch it later if you want. 
But uh, I was thinking about showing this video. Um, I was thinking about it as I was doing this in my office. I had seen this video a while back, and, and you would watch it, and I don't cry very easily or often. I'm sitting in my office crying watching this video, and you might watch it and be like, he was crying about that? Um, uh, but it's this video where it starts out with one guy, uh, and I think it's in Italy, um, and he's uh, standing playing an upright bass in like this city, big city courtyard area. He's just playing it, and he's got a hat in front of him. And a little girl comes and drops a coin in the hat. And then uh, and he starts playing music. Uh, and just one instrument, it sounds all right. And then a lady walks out from somewhere with a cello. And she sits down in a chair and starts playing a cello. And then, one by one, people are coming in, all these different people, many of them with instruments, uh, many of them just singing, using their voices, some of them young, some of them old, some of them with kids sitting on their shoulders, some of them coming alone. And all these people are gathering together, and what started as one guy playing on this instrument is all of a sudden this beautiful orchestra, they're playing Ode to Joy, and, and just and just uh, this beautiful sound, and everybody that's walking through this courtyard is they have video of these people stopping and just watching, and smiles are coming to their faces as they see this beautiful thing taking place. I'm sure people were playing wrong notes. I'm sure people were singing wrong notes. I'm sure not everybody had it all together, but it was all these people willing to say, hey, this would be a cool thing if we all showed up in this courtyard. And, and they did it, and they got a lot of applause for other people. We don't do it for applause from other people, but part of the, the beauty in, in the body of Christ is all these people gathering together saying, I can play an instrument. I'm not even very good at it. But if you want to use me, God, then use me. And it's a beautiful thing when we come together. And, we, and, and I think that's one of the ways in which we begin to use our bodies, present ourselves to God as instruments for righteousness and not unrighteousness. That's a practical way. If you are wanting to get involved in ministry in some way in this church, wondering how would I go about doing that, um, talk to me about that. We'd love to find a place for you to serve. I'm not going to say, like, then you will not deal with sin anymore. Uh, Not at all. You might even be tempted even further. Um, But I think growth comes as we offer ourselves to God as instruments for righteousness. So, that's it for this week. We're going to finish chapter 6 next week. I uh, hope you're back here. Um, I'm, going to, I'm going to pray while the worship team comes up and gets ready, and then we'll close with a song. So let's pray together. Father, I thank you uh, for the beauty of what it is that you create. That you in us, you, you, can, take, you can take unrighteous enemies of God under His wrath, and by Your abundant grace, through the work of Christ on the cross, and through our faith in Christ, You save us. You save us from Your wrath. You you give us a new relationship of peace with Christ. And God, forgive us for, for even considering that that might be an excuse for us to just continue to living the way that we used to live before our old self was put to death. I pray that we would be a people who would increasingly hate sin, especially the sin that we see in ourselves, that we would desire to run away from it, that we would recognize that we've been set free from it. We no longer need to live under its dominion. Thank you for the good news. God, I just lift up anybody 
uh, sitting here today. Um, those that are sitting here and hearing all of this, recognizing that this is a letter written to Christians, this message was primarily aimed at Christians, but for those that are sitting here today who have yet to come to a full understanding of who Jesus is and what He's done, that they have not yet trusted Christ as Lord and Savior, I pray that your spirit would have done enough work that they have the courage to just ask somebody some questions today, whether that's me or somebody else. I pray that that would take place. I pray that you'd help us to delight in you, in the work that you have accomplished for us, that we might regularly come and die to ourselves, that we might live to you in Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen.